am Leah Sassin, the Communications Manager at the Global Health Institute at the American University of Beirut, and I will be the Master of Ceremony for this event. It's an honor to welcome you all to Once of Four, the Gaza experience through the eyes of Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta. In partnership with the Institute for Palestine Studies and the Arabic Center for Research and Political Studies, this event will detail what happened and is still happening in Gaza through the eyes of Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta, who was there to bear witness to a deliberate dismantlement of the health system in Gaza. To begin, it's a privilege to invite Dr. Fadlo Khouri, the president of the American University of Beirut, for a welcoming note. Dr. Khouri's presence here tonight underscores the importance of this event and the critical issues that will be discussed. Dr. Khouri, Hey, good evening. I'm going to be brief. You didn't come here to see me or the town halls would have been more full. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta home to a significant degree. He was here for 10 years. Uh, he's never been far from AUB. I like the uh, title that Le Monde gave you, The Man Who Fixes Broken Faces. Dr. Abu Sitta was the founding director of the Conflict Medicine Program. Uh, back when the Institute for Global Health was in its infancy, it was a small uh, investment from the then Dean of Medicine, Hamad Saig, and myself. Uh, he's proven to be an extraordinarily... We knew he was an extraordinary surgeon many years ago, but he's also an extraordinarily human face to the tragedy that's taking place uh, in Gaza. All of us followed him uh, hourly, and then when he disappeared uh, after the bombing of the Baptist Hospital for a few hours, we were uh, worrying, but we're glad he's here with us. Uh, and I think everyone here at AUB and in the community is very much looking forward uh, to hearing more of what he can share. Uh, he's an individual who makes those of us in the medical profession proud that we've uh, dedicated our lives to it. So on behalf of AUB and the Global Health Institute, welcome home, Hassan. Thank you, Dr. Khoury, for your opening remarks. Before I invite Dr. Hassan for his speech, we will watch together a message from the founding director of the Global Health Institute at the American University of Beirut, Dr. Shadi Saleh. Unfortunately, due to prior commitments, Dr. Saleh is out of the country and unable to be with us in person today. Hello, everyone. My name is Shadi Saleh, and I am the director of the Global Health Institute at the American University of Beirut. First off, allow me to apologize for not being able to be with you in person and listen to Ghassan due to pre-scheduled travel. To start off, all of us know that in medicine, there are specialties. We have physicians who specialize in cardiology and oncology and pediatrics and many other specialties. For Ghassan, in addition to his clinical specialty as a reconstructive plastic surgeon, Ghassan is a doctor in humanity. He has shown us throughout his practice that he is really committed to a cause that is the human cause. That is why it's a pleasure to call him 
a friend and a colleague. A friend because we have spent so many years together uh, getting acquainted with one another and I appreciate that friendship. A colleague because some of you know that he was and is the main brain power behind our program in conflict medicine within the Global Health Institute at AUB. As our president, Dr. Fadl Khouri, has said recently, AUB has always chosen action. And a testament of that action is what Ghassan has done and what we as a university and we as an institute continue to do. It will be a pleasure to listen to you today and I would like to acknowledge the efforts by our co-hosts, the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies and the Institute of Palestine Studies. We all look forward to listening to what you have to say and thank you. Thank you, Dr. Saleh, for your inspiring words. Now, as we transition into the heart of today's discussion, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta, a field-leading plastic surgeon, an award-winning humanitarian, and a distinguished figure in the field of health, renowned for his extensive contributions to medical and humanitarian efforts in conflict zones, including Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Dr. Abu Sitta is also the founding director of the Conflict Medicine Program at the Global Health Institute and a member of the Board of Trustees at the Institute for Palestine Studies. Dr. Abu Sitta has always dedicated his expertise to understanding and addressing the wounds of war, especially as they manifest in the context of Gaza. His insights are not only informative, but carry a weight of responsibility as we strive to comprehend the complexities of health in regions affected by conflict. He dedicated his career to addressing the complex challenges of healthcare delivery in conflict-ridden areas. His work extends beyond academia, as he actively engages in underground efforts, providing medical assistance and advocating for the rights and well-being of affected populations. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta. Thank you very much for this uh, kind welcome to be back home um, at the Institute where one feels not just um, amongst very dear friends, but also an institution that, that I've always felt was intrinsic to what I had always viewed as a, a journey uh, um, that has taken the Palestinian people um, and their concept of health from uh, pre-1948, where Amongst the 75 Palestinian doctors, three quarters were uh, graduates of this institution. To the time when uh, uh, doctors at this institution and medical students 
uh, went out of the institution to provide the kind of medical care that our people needed um, in the refugee camps of Lebanon to the time when students went out to the south and set up clinics um, and treated the wounded of the war. And so for me, uh, this is the, the rightful place to be uh, uh, when talking about what is, I think, a very Palestinian experience in terms of our understanding of the relationship between health and the act of liberation, both liberating people and liberating their land. Um, and so thank you very much again for that kind, uh, uh, kind reception. I'm, you, start, you start on Saturday night. Um, by Saturday night, I, um, it was very obvious that what was coming was a horrific war. And really, by the evening, um, my wife uh, and I had that conversation that we've had in 2021 and 2014 and 2009 and, and really at every war, which is a very, it's a, it's a, to, to watch is a very stilted conversation because there's more unsaid than is said. And very quickly, we kind of agreed that the right thing to do was to be there, um, as we had always agreed on, on where I should be. Um, and really, uh, by Sunday morning, my friends at MSF, some of whom are here, had sorted out the tickets and, and, and we had agreed that I would go through Egypt because that was the quickest part and try to kind of take advantage of that confusion that happens at the beginning of each war where you're able to kind of get in unhindered. Um, by Monday morning, the 9th of October, I was in Rafah making my way to um, uh, uh, Gaza City. And really, um, as a result of the bombing that night, we were pinned down in a house. We couldn't move until the Tuesday morning. And um, it was Tuesday morning that I was able to walk from the house that I was in with my cousins to Shifa, where a journey that, that I had not expected uh, uh, that lasted around 43 days um, uh, took me through and not just Shifa Hospital, then how uh, the hospital in the north in Jabalia, and then back to Shifa when that was threatened, and then to Ali Baptist Hospital, and back from Ali Hospital when the um, Israelis fired a missile into the hospital, killing over 480 people, and then again a few days, a few weeks later, back to Baptist Hospital when. Um, as an act of resistance, uh, uh, the doctors and the nurses fixed parts of the hospital so that we can operate again. And it was really very quickly that it was apparent that this wasn't the usual war. Um, the sheer ferocity of the attack, the fact that unlike uh, the 2014 war where buildings were being targeted, here you would watch whole neighborhoods disappear first into a flash um, and a fireball and then into a, uh, a cloud of dust and then these neighborhoods would completely turn into rubble. And then with the passing days, the sheer number, the astounding number of wounded um, and those killed uh, uh, really highlighted uh, the fact that this is a war of, of genocide um, rather than a, a war that aimed at some military objective. 
and throughout my um, my experience, both here and uh, um, uh, in other wars in Gaza and in Yemen and Syria and and in Iraq, uh, one had come to learn how to read the war through the wounds of those patients, and how to read the weapons from the forensic evidence of those patients. And very soon after, we started seeing the full range of the kind of destruction and the kind of diabolical um, application of science that was behind these weapons. First wave where incendiary bombs were being used and we would receive hundreds of burns um, covering over 50-60% of the body surface area. Then another wave where we were seeing uh, uh, whole families disappear, uh, multi-generations. We started seeing children who were the sole survivors of multiple generations of of uh, 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 the same family. Then we started seeing uh, colleagues being killed. Uh, the first, and I'd like to pray tribute to to him, Dr. Midhat Saydam, who was killed when he tried to take his um, sister back to their house where his siblings were uh, when the Israelis targeted the house, killing him and all of his siblings and all of their children and his parents. Um, and then you felt that there was a, 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 a an intensity that was performative. Um, the war was being performed in a way that the Israelis wanted you to understand that there is no red lines and that they would pick those red lines that you believed existed in any kind of war, and then in a very open and, and um, exhibitionary way would take them apart. And I think uh, the, 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 war in, uh, the the attack on Ali Hospital was really that uh, uh, part of that uh, uh, test. That morning, because there were so many patients at Shifa Hospital, um, well beyond the capacity of the operating rooms, uh, we had decided, myself, my colleagues and I, uh, that I would start taking patients to Ali Hospital uh, to um, try to alleviate some of the pressures on Shifa Hospital, that we were you know, sometimes a week behind in taking cases to the operating room at Shifa because the sheer number of the wounded was overwhelming and the, the resources were being uh, consumed at a rate where we're starting to run out of things very quickly. And I remember arriving that morning uh, at uh, the Baptist Hospital where I had worked in 2021 and during the marches of return on the day the American Embassy had been moved to Jerusalem and there were thousands of gunshot wounds of demonstrators. Um, I remember noticing that that the like Shifa Hospital, the hospital had turned into a internally displaced camp. Um, Ali Hospital is one of the most beautiful hospitals. It's Gaza's oldest hospital. It was made, built in the 1880s by initially the Quakers, and then during the First World War, it was taken over by the British and was known as the English Hospital. And then eventually, and and it was uh, uh, taken over by the, the World Council of Churches, um, and the Anglican Church in the UK managed it on behalf of the World Council of Churches. And really, it was that connection with the UK that made everybody think if there was any hospital that would be targeted, Lahli Baptist would not be the one. Um, when I arrived, the place was 
because it had well-kept gardens, the place was full of families who just thought this is the safe place to hide. And I remember we started the day working um, and the, by the middle of the day, we I realized that I needed to continue operating into the night because the numbers were there and I had to start early in the morning. And so I made the decision to stay um, that night. And it was in that night uh, between cases, we had just wheeled the patient out. We were wheeling another one in when we heard the screeching sound of that missile and then the huge explosion. And the the proximity of the explosion, the the, the wave that hit the, the operating room where the false ceiling fell uh, made me immediately know that the hospital had been directly hit. And I remember walking out into the um, courtyard of the hospital where I had earlier seen these families uh, taking refuge and the ambulances were on fire, the cars were on fire and the fire had lit the the courtyard and the courtyard was just littered with bodies and, and parts of bodies. And it was obvious that what had happened is a direct missile attack exactly where people were sitting. And it hadn't happened, you know, even though in 30 years that spanned from the first intifada to to Yemen and everything in between and had not been in a hospital that was directly hit and a situation where the wounded were, I was in the middle of the wounded as they were wounded. Um, and it was obvious for me and, and unfortunately those who've written reports about whose missile it was and had never asked any of the doctors or any of the victims about um, uh, on their uh, to, to to provide evidence or a witness report, it was obvious to me that that there was something very different about this weapon. The number of amputations, uh, the location of amputations. Um, I would later rate, later um, seeing other injuries and kind of looking at why the, these injuries were happening realized that this is a new drone-fired Hellfire missile that was nicknamed the Ninja because it would fragment, the whole shell would fragment into discs that would cause amputations. And the first patient that I had seen had, had basically had an amputation at the level of his thigh, uh, you know, that looked like a guillotine. Um, and all around you, there are people with pieces of metal in them rather than injuries that were consistent with other explosives. Once we started resuscitating some of the patients, I, I went back to um, with the patient to transfer one of the patients who had a shrapnel in his neck and was bleeding through the neck. I took him back to Shifa Hospital. And then um, the rest of the wounded came. And then by the end of that night, 483 bodies had been counted for. Uh, and the wounded uh, had been taken to the operating room or to the intensive care unit. And it was really then that I understood it, that it was the sh the Ali um, uh, being specifically targeted. Uh, initially, um, that morning when I arrived to Ali, I was met by the administrators who told us that you know, despite the fact that they had received warnings from the Israeli army, and two warning missiles had been uh, fired at the outside um, gate of the hospital. They had received assurances from the bishop in the UK that, that, that he had been told by the foreign office in the UK that it was safe. But it was obvious that the selection of the hospital was a, a litmus test. 
the Israelis wanted to test the resolve of the world to see whether this high-profile hospital, if it's been attacked, what would be the response. And unfortunately, as you all know, the response was so miserable that the Israelis got the answer that they were looking for. And within uh, days, they set about really dismantling the health system in the north. Uh, by the end of that week, they had attacked four children's hospitals and taken them apart. Um, and then they set about attacking, putting forward the whole narrative about Shifa Hospital being this headquarters with underground uh, um, facilities. And while putting forward this narrative would just make, literally dismantled one hospital after another, taking them out of the system. Until uh, uh, that fateful uh, day, I remember that when there was a big press conference by the Israeli army about the diagrams and the tunnels and the, um, it was apparent that, that, that the Israelis was, were going to come for uh, Shifa Hospital. That night, the Israelis intentionally cut off all of the communication. Two hours after the press conference, cut off all communication with Gaza, um, internet and mobile phones and landlines, and then set about um, shelling the buildings surrounding the hospital, and then shelling a beach camp, which is on the coastal road from the artillery that was on the east uh, border of, of uh, Gaza. Um, and that night, when you kind of saw the missiles land around you and overhead, you kind of understood that, that really this is, this is the main military strategy of the war, was to dismantle the health system. And that the aim of this dismantlement, alongside the, the taking apart of all of the components of modern life, water uh, desalination plants, uh, uh, sewage, um, bakeries, uh, attacking well-known warehouses for some of the pharmaceutical companies. And the idea was to, what we call, create a self-feeding uh, catastrophe. You create the catastrophe, um, and then that catastrophe continues on without needing to be fed the wounded will have no place uh, to be treated. Um, with the destruction of the water and sewage treatment system, you will have the epidemics that you need. And by taking out the bakeries and preventing more food getting into Gaza, you will have the malnutrition that you require to create that perfect uh, 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 combination of malnutrition, injury, um, and overcrowding and unsanitary life so that epidemics can start taking their toll on people. And it was really at, at that kind of point and it was that night that we started seeing this other wave of performative deaths. Um, the Israelis started firing phosphorus bombs over uh, um, Shatik camp and we started getting people with phosphorus bombs. I'd, I treated people with phosphorus bombs during the 2009 war, uh, and, and it, they have a very distinctive injury pattern. They're unlike uh, thermal injuries that burn from the outside in. As chemical burns, they bear their way um, into the body, and you have these deep burns that extend all the way into the bone or into the internal organs. 
And really, it was yet another kind of exhibition of of violence. And violence for the Israelis is useless if it's not performative. It has to be seen to be violent. Unfortunately, soon after, the situation kept getting worse at Shifa Hospital. And I uh, was forced to again start considering the... Um, idea that we needed to start taking patients again to Al-Ahli. Um, our colleagues at Al-Ahli Hospital had managed to fix a couple of the uh, uh, ground floor wards. The top floor wards were damaged and the shaft of the elevator was damaged and so we couldn't fill out the... the and they had fixed the, the two of the operating rooms. And again, I started taking patients from Shifa Hospital back to uh, Al-Ahli Hospital on a daily basis, operate on them and then go back that evening to Shifa. Until one of those mornings, um, the Israelis completely encircled Shifa Hospital, and I was um, on the other side um, at Al Ahli. That day, Al Ahli Hospital became the last remaining hospital in Gaza City, and we started receiving uh, the wounded. A hospital that had 30 beds and two operating rooms within days had over 500 wounded, uh, many of whom were on mattresses in the hospital grounds. Um, and our capacity to treat them were, was so uh, infinitesimally small uh, that only the most life-threatening, immediately life-threatening cases could go. Everyone else was bandaged and placed in the, on the mattresses. Um, and the siege started to bite. We l ran out of morphine, we ran out of ketamine, which is a veterinary anesthetic that we use in, in war surgery because it allows us to perform um, complex procedures without the need for anesthesia uh, for an anesthetist and so soon these wounded patients who had been just bandaged up were showing signs of infection of these wounds and we were forced to use to, to perform really painful procedures to clean these wounds with no anesthetic and sometimes on children um, because the risk of infection was becoming so high that, that their lives were at risk. Um, things were so, uh, um, at that time, so basic that, that we were doing these cleanups with washing up liquid and vinegar and uh, boiled water that we would boil to sterilize and then use it because we didn't want to finish the, the, the saline bags that we had and we continued on really with, with that, just trying to do the best towards the end. There was no reconstructive surgery. I was assisting my colleagues uh, in doing abdominal surgery. I was doing airway uh, procedures. Um, and it was just very basic war surgery. Um, the last two days, the Israelis targeted a mosque where a family well-known family in that neighborhood um, used as a shelter and as a um, as a uh, uh, you know as a mosque and, and it, they picked the kind of you know Laisha prayers they fired the missile it was yet, yet another one of those hellfire missiles and we received that night 60 uh, uh, killed and, and several hundred wounded and it was really that night that we had to triage people with the help of their relatives 
we they would decide which one of the wounded they felt that needed to go to the operating room because everybody needed to go to the operating room. And it was based on how many children they had, who they were raising. Um, we operated that night till five o'clock in the morning. And then at five o'clock in the morning, at the end of the last procedure, the anesthetist told us that they'd run out of uh, medication, run out of anesthetic, propofol, ketamine, everything had finished. And it was really at that moment that we decided that, you know, as a surgical team, there was nothing left for us to do in in northern Gaza. And we made our way. Um, in the early hours of the morning, we decided to walk out of the hospital. Now, the problem was that the we had seen and heard the um, what were called quadcopter uh, uh, drones. These are small drones with a sniper gun. And we had received from the vicinity of the hospital over the f previous days over 20 patients who had been shot with high-velocity gunshot wounds by quadcopters as they tried to get to the hospital. We kind of followed the, the, the side streets out of the hospital in a, you know, what took six hours to get to what the Israelis had referred to as the um, the pathway between the north and the south and that was supposed to be a safe zone. When we got it uh, to, to, to Salah Din Street, it was like a scene from... It really was, for me, uh, Najil Ali had described what the Israelis had done in Saida in 82 when they brought all of the inhabitants of Saida and all of the inhabitants of Ain al-Hilwi to the beach. Um, and it was very much like that. Um, you had to walk through a very narrow area uh, and look to the left. And rather than what had happened in 82 before the technology, there was a masked man with a bag on his head who had pointed people out. And to the left were cameras and binoculars, obviously with, with facial uh, recognition software. And people would be stopped and you would be asked to put your hand on the guy next to you. And if it's the right guy, then he would be told to leave the child that he has and walk towards the Israeli soldiers. And you could see that there are people who'd been arrested, um, stripped down and blindfolded and, and arrested. And, and along that road, they had intentionally left dead bodies so that you can see what was happening as you walked past them. I uh, eventually got to the other side, uh, to Nsayrat camp, which is in the central area, but um, what was designated now the south. And, and I joined some friends in a hospital that was being, um, a hospital um, was being run by a Palestinian NGO in Nsayrat. Um, and for those remaining two days, I... Um, was just doing dressing changes because I discovered that the situation in the South was not much better. Um, the operating rooms were sh so short of resources, um, so short of, of fuel, that as a surgeon, you had the same sense of, um, of paralysis um, because you couldn't get your patients to the operating room. There was, you know, only the most critically ill were getting there and it, very limited. And it was really at that time that I thought this is the time to properly leave. On the morning where I was supposed to leave, um, I had operated at Al-Ali Hospital on a child, a 13-year-old boy who had had 
his mother was killed and, and his siblings were killed and it was just him and his dad and he had had an amputation uh, to his right thigh um, and a crush injury to his hand and I had to do a surgical procedure that was from the 50s literally described in kind of early plastic surgery books where you bury the hand in the wall of the abdomen so you can protect the exposed uh, um, tissues. And when I left Ahli Hospital, I went and spoke to the dad and told him where I was heading. Um, and that morning when I was supposed to leave in Sarat, he, they came to the hospital. Um, his dad has pushed him for those six hours <laughs> in a wheelchair to come and see me. And it was uh, probably the most difficult decision that I would have to do, make. That after I cleaned his wounds, that I would still leave. Um, and with him, um, lots of my patients. Um, the killing continues as we speak now. Um, the genocidal intent is still there. Um, this is Benny Morris's war. You know, Benny Morris is the Zionist historian who having written one book about the genesis of the Palestinian refugee crisis, uh, where he described the massacres in 48, had a change of heart and then did a series of um, articles with Haartz where he said this was the biggest mistake the Zionist movement made. They left, they left the Palestinians in the Galilee, in the West Bank and the Gaza, and unless the Zionist movement corrected this mistake, then it was doomed as a project to fail. And from very early on, we realized that this was the aim of this war, is really to continue as a first step before they moved on to the West Bank and the Galilee um, and the Arab Triangle um, to clear the country of the remnants of who they had left be behind in 48. Um, and the aim of this catastrophe that they're creating so that it would continue on after this war uh, has ended is to clear the country so that they can move on to the West Bank and to, to the Galilee. And really, that is the mentality uh, that exists now amongst the Israeli public, amongst all sectors of Israeli public. Um, there was, during the war, a petition signed by 400 leading Israeli doctors calling for uh, the destruction of the Palestinian health system, calling on the army to target the Palestinian health system. And so when you reach that final uh, uh, solution mentality, um, it is bleak uh, what um, is held for us. But at the same time, it's these acts, not just of, of resistance as we know it, these daily acts of resistance by the fact that there are Jabalia camp in the north is still full of people. That there are all, all, still almost 700 to 800,000 living in northern Gaza. That people now share everything openly with each other. That there are houses where they've put up people they barely knew to live with them. Uh, uh, where these acts of love that you can never understand in normal conditions. Where people adopt the children who are now... Uh, wounded but have no uh, uh, remaining relatives and and help and feed them with their own children all of these acts of of collective solidarity and love in the face of what is just 
the palpable hatred uh, of settler colonialism towards natives um, is is what keeps people moving. But even they have a finite ability to to um, stay steadfast. Over fifty thousand wounded, majority of whom have not had their wounds fully treated. Um, Israel has killed one percent of Gaza's children, between those who have been registered, around seven thousand, to those who are believed to still be under the rubble and buried in their homes. One percent of Gaza's children have now been killed in under fifty days, and the continuation of this genocide, um, and and it's it's uh, the 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 magnitude of it. Uh, is what everybody finds difficult to kind of just wrap around. Imagine that this in day this day and age, it can happen, but it is happening, and that's why uh, we need to find answers to stop this, because once it starts, then it'll move to the West Bank, and it'll move to the Galilee, and then it'll move to Lebanon. This war says a lot about where the Zionist movement is historically than about us. Um, and that is what needs to be taken um, as a lesson from the war in Gaza. They are now in a genocidal frame of mind and that will never be quenched as we can see in Gaza. Thank you very much. We express our deep appreciation to Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta for providing invaluable perspectives on the challenges faced in conflict zones and the enduring impact on communities. Now, we will explore together the intricate interplay between conflict, health, and human resilience through a moderated discussion. The moderator, Dr. Muna Khalidi, is a health and social development expert with a particular focus on Palestinian community. She's also involved in research and production of documentary films on social justice issues. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Muna Khalidi to facilitate this engaging conversation with Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta. Okay, good. Thank you, Lassan. Um, so good evening, everyone. Uh, I will start with a few words that I want to say, uh, which is that we heard a lot about uh, Ghassan, but I still want to talk a little bit about Ghassan, the person. Uh, for one thing, Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta is a rare breed. He's the rare breed of physician who was able to put both in theory and practice, bridge the gap between highly specialized medicine and public health. Um, he is a surgeon who sees, but more importantly appreciates the bigger picture. Um, and he does that by, by clearly understanding and responding to the needs of his uh, patients at both the micro level and at the level of the wider community at one and the same time. Um, Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta, um, I think, has clearly shown us through his uh, career that uh, he acts 
uh, on his uh, sense of duty, on his uh, belief system, and on his uh, ethics and moral principles. Um, he is not only a surgeon and a public health uh, person, but he is also uh, very aware of the importance of documenting what is going on, of being a witness, and of uh, what the young generation calls speaking truth to power. And this is what he's doing now since he left Gaza this last time. Um, just anecdotally, today I walked with Ghassan through the AUB, uh, through the AUB campus, a walk that I've done a billion times in my life. Uh, but this time it was different because at every three steps, somebody would stop us, whether it's a colleague or a student or um, one of the cleaning staff or one of the security men, and they would stop him and thank him, thank him for being uh, an inspiration. Um, as we left College Hall, we found uh, waiting for him a young student who had heard that he was there holding a bouquet of flowers and lots and lots of tears. And she just wanted to thank him for um, being her inspiration and for being a hero. And I think she speaks certainly on my behalf, but I think on behalf of all of us. So thank you, Hassan. Um, yeah, actually. And now that we've sufficiently embarrassed you, <laughs> uh, I'd like to pick up on some of the things that you spoke about. Um, so one of the things that you said was, this war is different. This is your fifth Gaza war. And you said this is different. Um, and it's not different only in terms of scale. Uh, I would like you to speak a bit more about that. But one of the interesting things about it, interesting, is that it's a multi-epidemic uh, uh, situation. So we have an epidemic, epidemic of wounded, we have an epidemic of uh, communicable diseases, we have an epidemic of malnutrition that's taking place now, we have an epidemic of non-communicable diseases as services break down, we even have an, an epidemic of cancers uh, as they've targeted specific uh, uh, services. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it's different in addition to the scale? In terms of the scale, it really is the difference between a, a flood and a tsunami. Uh, just everything about it was much bigger um, and because the intent was different. This was a genocidal war rather than a military victory war. And so the aim of it was never and it never is to gain the upper hand in any uh, way the aim of it is to make the place uninhabitable and you make the place uninhabitable by killing as many people and wounding as many people and then making sure that those who are left behind their lives are so miserable that they will have to leave soon after um, and that's you know I uh, since I've, I've uh, left Ghazid that's the point that I've always been trying is that the war is going to continue after the ceasefire that the real war is going to start when they deny the rebuilding, they deny the medical teams access to the 50,000 wounded, when they deny the universities uh, uh, an ability to rebuild, stop people from getting their kids into education because all of the schools are full of refugees. All of these things are really being put in place now so that whatever is left 
carries on well after the war. In terms of scale, yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the, the, the meetings that we had a few days ago, um, I went to Qatar because the, the Children's Prosthetic Center in Gaza um, was, is funded by Doha Foundation, Qatar Foundation. And prior to the war at GHI, we, had had, we were starting a project with them looking at the burden of care of pediatric amputations. And at that time, there were still 180, 190 uh, children with war-related amputations in Gaza. In this war, my, and this is really a conservative estimate, I think there's probably now between 900 and 1,500 children with amputations in this war, many of whom now have multiple amputations and many of whom have been left without family to look for them. Sorry, to look after them. And so, uh, and that's a kind of example of, of the, so not only is the dimension of wounding much more difficult, the complexity of the wounding, the social component, looking after these kids is going to be much more difficult. The mental health burden on these children is much more difficult. And this is only a small cohort in multitude of, you know, when, when Shifa collapsed, uh, 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 there were 120 children who were wounded and were the sole survivors of their families. And they had no one left, even a kind of second cousin to look after them. Some of whom were so young, we didn't know their names. And they, did, you know, they were less than three, we couldn't ask them their names. So all of these layers of kind of wounding, uh, not just the physical, um, but the social and the psychological are happening at a scale, as Muna said, that is, that is an epidemic scale. How do you address mental health needs of two and a half million people? What is the post-traumatic in a place that doesn't know what post-trauma is? How do you uh, start mental health support when people are still wounded and they're still living in shelters and they're still uh, uh, struggling to find food? Um, all of these um, complexities that we've never seen in this modern day, but probably had existed in, in the past uh, um, uh, in other genocidal campaigns, uh, we're, we're having to witness and, and come up with solutions and think about the day after. What do we do for the people who are left behind so that the wounds um, are allowed to heal and that this ethnic cleansing, which is the aim of this war, doesn't happen? I just uh, want to pick up on one thing before I ask you about the future. Um, when you're talking about the burden, um, the, the, the people we traditionally rely on, the carers, whether they're medical staff or the teachers or psychiatrists or psychologists, they themselves are the victims of what's going on. So how, how do we expect those people to then pick up the pieces and care for others? So, um, till now, there's around 290 doctors and nurses and paramedics who've been killed. Um, and, and they've not been randomly killed. The percentage of doctors who've been killed who have unique skills is too high for, this to, for us to believe. You know, when the only nephrologist in Gaza 
after six years of residency in Jordan, gets killed uh, during the war. When the only, um, and he was a colleague of ours at GHI and was a fellow at the Global Health Institute doing research in Gaza, the only pathologist in the cancer hospital is killed. When uh, uh, the head of neurosurgery is wounded because his house is, is targeted, you see that this dismantlement of the health system is not restricted just to the buildings and the equipment. There is an attempt to make sure that this is truly an uninhabitable place when this war ends. Um, I mean, within the small group that I was in, and it was probably one of the smallest departments, we had, there were seven of us. All of my colleagues had lost their homes. We, Dr. Midhat Saydam was killed. Another young doctor, his brother, who was 18 and, and had high school diploma later on this year, was initially wounded with shrapnel in the head and then passed away. Um, we had a colleague who, while in the emergency department, his cousins were brought in half dead and the others were badly injured. Everyone in that team was directly affected because the percentage of, of those killed, one in 200 people, meant that everybody was being affected. And that was at the, then. So the percentage now is probably closer to 1.5. 1.5% of the population and 1% of the children are now been killed in just 50 days. Which brings us to the the real war, as you said, which is what comes next, making Gaza uninhabitable. Um, so the tools we have will not work um, currently. What, what? How do you see this going? How do you see, I know you've spent a lot of time talking to various forums about this. I know you have your own um, recommendations of how to handle this on the, like, today uh, level, on the immediate level, on the short-term level, medium-term, and long-term. Can you walk us through some of the ideas that you have? So the most important thing is for us not to accept this as a fait accompli, that this is the fate of the Palestinian people and that the Israelis will um, do what the Israelis will do and the world needs to walk around the catastrophe. And to ensure that those governments, both within the region and outside, um, are held accountable for their role in maintaining the siege on Gaza. In terms of the practicalities, when you look at the 45 to 50,000 wounded, around 20,000 children wounded, um, these are uh, multiple stages. They will need intensive support, um, mental health support, while they're going through these stages. And the aim of this wounding is so that when they are eventually taken out for treatment, even if they go out with one accompanying relative, then they become, uh, they help clear the way. And so we need to have, unfortunately the size means that all of the solutions need to be, you know, we need to have teams going in with field hospitals to increase the capacity. We need to have some of the more critically wounded and the complex injuries taken out. We need to rehabilitate the damaged hospitals so that they can, as quickly as possible, 
get back on uh, um, uh, line so that they can increase the capacity of treatment. We need to rebuild the non-communicable diseases, the cancer centers, the ophthalmology, so that people are, don't continue to die from their chronic diseases. And we need to train and give people, we need to give people a reason to stay. Or we need to help them stay. I mean, one of the things that, and this is a, this is one thinks that that you know, um, one was sufficiently politically aware to kind of not be surprised by anything. But one of the things that I think really surprised me uh, about this war is that the humiliation of becoming a refugee, that degradation that happens to the soul of becoming a refugee was such a formative part of Palestinian modern identity that it is a fate for Palestinians worse than death. And that's why Jabalia camp is still full of people. And that's why when the, uh, uh, the Rafah border was opened, those stuck outside Gaza went in rather than a stampede to the outside. The Israelis thought that the death and the threat of further death would drive people out. But they had failed to understand that in the Palestinian collective memory, there is a fate worse than death. And that is to become a refugee, destitute, dependent on others, loss of social status, loss of community uh, connections. And that is what keeps people there. They will not go through what their parents and grandparents went through again, even if they have to die where they are. So, so no second Nakba. Absolutely, and and it's a recognition that this is a Nakba part two. This is the continuation of Nakba, and that people will not leave. Now, what the Israelis believe they're able to do is make the situation so bad that people leave for their kids, people leave for their children's education. That's why over three hundred schools have been destroyed. That's why there was a night where they just carpet bombed the universities. That's why they killed several of the deans and several, and the president of the University of the Islamic University. He's a well-known physicist, highly cited. You know, there is a, there's a method to this madness. And the method is, uh, and that it is that that we need to fight against. At the moment, we, there's, we are so restricted in what we can do. But what we can do as communities in the region um, is start thinking about what do we do in the day after? How do we help people stay? Do we help them stay by ensuring that whatever we learned from COVID is extended to them uh, so that their kids can get an education? Whatever uh, teams can be brought in, whatever we can do to bring the wounded out, we can do that. Um, all of these things, all of these components are, that make help people remain in steadfast are, are, are activated by communities across the region. I remember you telling me that uh, one, uh, the first time you went out from Shifa, that the night before three universities had been pretty much obliterated, like raised to the ground. Uh, that, that was shocking because that's not the kind of news one like hears regularly. Um, I want to ask you a small question that people ask a lot, which is about um, 
the idea that the Israelis test new weapons. You mentioned the armadillo. You mentioned the um, uh, sniper uh, uh, drones. Uh, these are causing a lot of damage. And uh, it has been mentioned that uh, they're actually experimenting. And one of the reasons that you know there are mass graves that sometimes are raided is precisely because they want to continue to study the effect uh, of their weapons so as to be able to document it and then sell it better. Can you speak a bit about that? If you, if you look at the history of, of phosphorus bombs, so phosphorus bombs were first reported in, by the hospitals in Sur and Saida in 82. And they reported that, that, the, problems, that the, the problem that they were having uh, was that uh, when they put the bodies inside the morgue, the phosphorus fumes were still coming out. And so you realize that actually from that point, there is an R&D plan for these that has taken us from that war to uh, 2009 to this current war where they have been perfecting phosphorus burns and phosphorus bombs. Um, and what happens is there's an upshot in sales of these weapons right after each Israeli war on Gaza. I'm sure that the, you know, the, the, the quadcopter sniper is going to, to the sales are going to go through the roof. This Hellfire missile that's a fragmentary missile, the sales are going to go through the roof. There's a, a, a kind of interesting, uh, someone was talking about the difference between South Africa and, and Israel. And they were saying that, that South Af in South Africa, uh, the, South Af the South African Pretoria regime needed black labor to generate wealth uh, by going down the mines and, and extracting capital value. The Israelis, because they do not need Palestinian labor, extract value from the Palestinian body by creating a whole industry is around the, the wounding and the murder and the surveillance of Palestinians. And so it almost becomes that the Palestinian body is the mine rather than the miner, where Pal Israeli capital creates value. OK. I know you were instrumental in developing the um, GHI uh, program, um, conflict medicine program, uh, the curriculum. After this this war, um, would is there anything you would add to that program? This was a course that we had written, um, and with the aim of having it as a part of the curriculum of medical schools, and and we at GHI managed to get Adan University in Mustansiriya in northern Iraq and the Islamic University in Gaza to run the course for their students. And, and after this experience, for me, what, what I would add is, is this, what I had learned about inventing new things, about using vinegar and, and washing up liquid, about spending the night um, cutting up cardboard boxes that where the supplies had come in and turning it into splints so that the following day we can use them as splints for the fractured patients because we'd run out of plaster of Paris, um, about uh, um, re-sterilizing uh, re one single-use equipment 
uh, having you know been um, so used to just disposable one-use equipment in this day and age, and and I would um, add about those skills that by virtue of becoming being part of a previous generation of surgeons, where you had to become a general surgeon before you subspecialized, whereas now you're expected to subspecialize at after medical school, that there are certain skills within the armamentarium of every surgeon, whatever specialty you need to do. You need to be able to, I mean, the number of, you know, when these bombs went off, these fragmentary bombs, a lot of them would go into the, the trachea and the airways of people. And, and the number of cases where I had to open someone's um, airway and put a tube so that they can breathe, um, the number of cases that I was doing, you know, there are so many things that, that you still need as a surgeon before you become a plastic surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon that you need to always uh, remember because you live in a part of the world where this disease in, in, is endemic. And unless we understand the endemic nature of this disease, um, we will continue to kind of face the consequences. Basically talking about being prepared, being um, innovative and being unstoppable, like overcoming obstacles as they put them in your course, as they will. Deep understanding of, of the pathology. And, uh, and that's why we were advocating at GHI uh, uh, that this belongs in the undergraduate curriculum. Then you, you, can, you can be innovative because it's, you're grounded in the knowledge and in the fundamentals of this kind of medicine. I'm not saying that we kind of look forward to have, having, but just having an understanding of it um, means that you're able to understand what needs to be, you know, the innovations that you need to be making at every stop. Um, okay, I think we've, we're coming to the end of our time. I just have one last question for you. Uh, talking to you um, brings home all the, the magnitude of the crisis, the disaster that we're facing, and yet you have hope. Um, what, what, what do you build that hope on? From a human level, uh, my hope is, is in this miracle in which despite everything, there are still people there who are persisting and they are resisting in those day-to-day -day acts of, of existence that they have, you know, that they have stayed in Jabalia, that they have stayed in Beit Lahia, that there's still um, hope uh, uh, because of my colleagues who are just, you are amazed that, you know, those who were imprisoned in Shifa hospital for over two weeks, when they were released, um, they went and joined the next hospital down the road. Um, or went to the south and joined another hospital. Um, that from the very beginning there was a there was an implicit national decision taken by all health staff that regardless of how many times they target the hospitals, that the hospitals will not evacuate um, as long as there are patients. And so these acts of kind of steadfastness uh, by. Uh, uh, ordinary people doing ordinary acts of living in, in the face of this death world that the Israelis have, have, have created is what fills you with hope. 
And what fills you with hope is, is that after 75 years, that the, the Israelis have reverted to this level of barbarism because they cannot understand why, after everything, we're still there. Thank you, Ephraim.